You are listening to Christian Lighthouse Ministries of Canada, shining a beacon of truth into the ever-present darkness of this world. This is your host and watchman. Welcome to the first official full-length episode for CLM Canada, discussing why we stand for the King James Bible and why we won't use any of the other versions. This can be a difficult one to understand without full investigation. On the surface, it can seem as though nearly any of the other versions is just as good as the King James and even easier to understand. There are two historical lines of Bibles in circulation today. I will not be counting extra works such as the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Apocrypha, and many others. There is the Byzantine or Received Text line of historical documents and translations, which the King James Bible is a part of. And there is the Alexandrian or Critical Texts, which all other versions are based on, to a varying degree. This also includes the Codex Vaticanus, which is where the Catholic religion gets their texts from. First, I would like to start with the history of the King James Bible. The King James Bible was first published in the year 1611 under the rule of King James. This was the first ever complete modern English Bible. This was the culmination and refinement of the developing English language and prior English translation works such as Tyndale, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, and a handful of others. Each one of these translation works was done directly from the received texts, also known as the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Texts. These texts can be traced right back to around the same period of time that they were written in. One argument may be is that we don't have the actual original documents. While that may be true, we have copies of the original documents, and these can be verified by the fact that we have over 5,000 of these documents corroborating one another. I'll be going into the preservation of these texts a bit later. Secondly, let's look at the translation methods of the King James Bible. King James contracted 50 scholars who were fluent in two or more languages, English being one, and at least one other biblical language, either Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. Some of these scholars knew as many as 20 or more different languages. They were given a specific set of instructions to ensure that the biblical text was translated correctly and accurately. Let's look at these instructions. 1. The ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and altered as little as the truth of the original will permit. 2. The names of the prophets and the holy writers, with the other names of the text, to be retained as nigh or near, as they may be, according as they were vulgarly used. Vulgarly in the modern English is not the same as we use the word vulgar today. It simply means commonly used. 3. The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept. This means that the translations of specific words containing near identical meanings should be kept in the same way that they were used, such as the word Passover instead of Easter commonly used in the bishop's Bible, or using the word church instead of congregation, since the word church had not been used outside of notes until the Geneva Bible, though there is nothing wrong with using the word church as it means the same thing. 4. When a word hath diverse significations, that to be kept which hath been most commonly used by the most ancient fathers, being agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogy of the faith. Simply put, 
If a word has multiple meanings, use the meaning that the writer of the book commonly used, along with making sure that the meaning fit the context in which the passage was referring to. In other words, don't change the meaning of what was originally written. Number five, the divisions and chapters to be altered, either not at all or as little as may be, if necessity so require. Again, this one is fairly straightforward. Don't change any of the chapters, verses, or divisions of scripture that have already been set in place, unless if during the translation of a word, it would be out of place without moving that division slightly. This is not changing the context in the slightest, but making a concession knowing that sometimes when translating into different languages, you either need to use more words or fewer words to get the same meaning of the word. Therefore, an adjustment may need to be made only in that instance. 6. No marginal notes at all to be affixed, but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. This had perhaps been the greatest issue with the Geneva Bible, while King James and the Anglican bishops certainly had concerns about some of the translations in the Geneva Bible, their main objections came from the marginal notes which interpreted passages from a reformed point of view. This issue was solved by only having notes intended to clarify the language used. 7. Such quotations of places to be marginally set down and shall serve for the first reference of one scripture to another. 8. Every particular man of each company to take the same chapter or chapters, and having translated or amended them severally by himself, where he thinketh good, all to meet together to confer what they have done, and agree for their parts what shall stand. The companies, also known today as committees, contained eight men, each split between three different universities. This was a major strength of the translating process, in which not one person would be able to make their own assumptions and translations that are biased in any way. 9. As any one company hath dispatched any one book, in this manner they shall send it to the rest, to be considered of seriously and judiciously, for his majesty is very careful in this point. This was another major strength of the translating process, since not only the individual company would see the translation and have to agree, but would then be able to read and be verified by the rest of the companies. So if there was an issue with the translation, then it would be able to be brought to light and fixed, rather than letting an error slip through. 10. If any company upon review of the book so send, doubt, or differ on any place, to send them word thereof, note the place, and withal send the reasons to which if they consent not, the difference to be compounded at the general meeting, which is to be the chief of persons of each company at the end of the work. 11. When any place of special obscurity is doubted of, letters to be directed by authority to send to any learned man in the land, for his judgment of such a place. 12. Letters to be sent from every bishop to the rest of his clergy, admonishing them of this translation in hand, and to move and charge as many skillful in the tongues, and having taken pains in that kind, to send his particular observations to the company, either at Westminster, Cambridge, or Oxford.
Rules 10 to 12 are great instructions because it not only brings these 50 men into having to be into complete agreement with the translation, but it also brings in other men, pastors, and even just regular people to be able to ensure the most accurate translation possible and hold these men accountable so they could not change any doctrine or content of the scriptures. These last three instructions, again, are mainly redundancies to ensure a complete and accurate translation possible without error, yet each one just as as important as the other. 13. The directors in each company, to be the deans of Westminster and Chester, for that place, and the king's professors in the Hebrew or Greek in either university. 14. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text rather than the Bishop's Bible. Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, and Geneva. These translations would essentially be used like pastors do today with commentaries, using them to help with the translations, as these are English works that have come before, as well as helping to make sure they did not change any doctrine or content. 15. Beside the said directors before mentioned, three or four of the most ancient and grave divines in either of the universities, not employed in translating, to be assigned by the vice-chancellor upon conference with the rest of the heads to be overseers of the translations as well as Hebrew and Greek for the better observation of the fourth rule. This rule is very simple, ensuring that there would be proper overseers over each of the groups of companies, rather than having six or more men from every company stating their case, you had one man over multiple companies who could come together and discuss with the other two or three men to come to an agreement. These 15 rules were followed very closely, and when you look along the common line of all of these rules, it boils down to... Do not change any part of what the scripture says, and translate each word, phrase, verse, chapter, and doctrine as it is, what we would call today as a word-for-word translation. The translators were also very honest. Any time they had to add a word for grammatical consistency, each word was italicized and or noted for clarification and transparency. Some may say that there have been over 10,000 different changes to the King James Bible since it was translated. While that may be true, those changes were all done under the supervision of the translators themselves, and each one of those changes was either a spelling update or fix. It was not to add, remove, or otherwise change large portions of scripture, but to fix printer's errors. Let us now look at the rest of the versions out there. I will be using the NIV as my reference material for the most part. Yet 99% of the versions out there, apart from the King James Bible, all follow suit. The new versions of the Bible use what is known as the critical text. These include the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. All in all, there are about 200 copies of these texts, and they greatly differ from the majority or received texts in the fact that there are a lot of missing verses, words, and whole passages. For example, when you look at the NIV alone, there are over 8,000, yet some would say closer to 16,000, different changes, removals of verses, and whole passages of scripture. There are arguments claiming that these texts are older, and therefore are more reliable documents. And while yes, the Carmen dating does put the parchment or vellum that the documents are written on as older, 
though there is a fair amount of evidence showing that carbon dating is inaccurate. How these documents came to be should make us all question the validity and accuracy of them. This also doesn't account for the preservation processes that have been historically used in order to preserve these scriptures. What would typically be done is a methodical transcription from the damaged or fading documents onto new parchment or prepared vellum. Once that was done, the old vellum would be scraped, cleaned, and prepared for use once again, as vellum was very expensive, and the parchments were most likely continued to be used until they were unusable, similar to our paper today. That being said, because of the preservation process, the 5,000 plus documents, though perhaps younger by carbon dating, would still be the original documents, just on newer paper. Think of a photocopier today. Does having a document photocopied change the validity of a document? No, for the content is exactly the same. The scribes of old were essentially the photocopier of their time. Their entire job was to meticulously and methodically copy documents exactly as their original. Also, with the new church, their standard practice in every church was to copy each letter and the New Testament book when received and to share it with all of the other churches so every church could have the full word of God. One would think if the letters varied, it would easily be caught since there would be hundreds of other churches receiving the similar letters from other churches and would be able to catch the one or two that were in error and correct them. Let's take a look at the validity of the Septuagint against the Masoretic texts. Earlier I mentioned these two. The Masoretic texts were in the line of the English translations leading to the King James, and there is the Septuagint which was used in the Alexandrian line which concludes 99 of the other versions out there, including the Catholic Bible. The Septuagint was historically thought to be translated by 72 Jewish and Egyptian scholars over the course of 72 days, according to the letters of Aristeus. However, the letter itself is under question, as it gets many historical facts wrong. The Septuagint also, in many places, has either added verses or sayings, removed, and or rearranged whole passages. The book of Jeremiah, for example, is a one-eighth shorter than the Masoretic text. Also, the quick translation of the Hebrew into Greek has to cast some doubt on how careful the Septuagint was actually translated. Just think, too. This was a project under Ptolemy II of Egypt, in which people were instructed to buy or copy all of the books in the world. With such a massive undertaking for the Library of Alexandria, most of these scribes copying must have been under a great workload, and with that type of work, errors would easily be able to be made and not caught. How many errors while reading mass-produced books and articles today do you see? And yet we have computers, spell checkers, and multiple redundancies to catch all of these errors. Let's look at the Masoretic texts. The Masoretes were a group of Jewish scholars devoted to the preservation of the scriptures. Their process of copying was extremely meticulous. One of their copies would have taken years to copy. Here are some of the rules they had to follow. Every word must be copied with the exact same letters and characters with the same amount of letters and characters. Every line must start and end with the same letter, character, and word the original has. Every sentence must have the exact same punctuation, words, letters, and characters, both in content and number, in the same places 
as the original. Every page must start and end with the same letter, word, character, or punctuation as the original. It must also have an identical word count as the original. Each word must be prayed over, read, then read aloud. Each letter written down, then the word read aloud again. Then read the sentence aloud, up to the point of your word. Each Maserite, before entering the chamber to copy the document, must fully wash themselves from head to toe and pray, out of respect for God. If there was a single error as small as a period or accenting mark in the wrong place, they were to destroy the entire page and start over again. Just as a side note, I'm sure this would be pretty bad if it happened near the end of the second page, so I'm sure the scribes were extra careful. If there are three or more errors within the whole book that was being copied, the entire book would be destroyed. On another side note, I'm sure the scribe would also lose his job. Of course, there would have been many more rules. But this at least shows you the extent of their devotion, commitment, and how meticulous they were in preserving the Old Testament. Then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were found in a cave near the Dead Sea in what was a colony of a Jewish sect that, as history tells us, were consistently trying to discredit Jesus. Later on, after the biblical documents were written, they were attempting to forge and change what they said. Even in the Apostle Paul's day, which is one of the reasons why I believe Paul told the believers in Galatians 1, 6-9, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that call you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. These documents very carefully, but specifically change doctrines regarding Christ and other fundamental principles within Scripture. Let's talk about some of these changes to Scripture that the critical texts make. Our first example is 1 John 5, 7. In the King James Bible, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. However, this section has been removed, and verses 7 and 8 tend to be combined in order to mislead the reader into thinking that there is nothing missing. Second, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Yet if you look at the NIV, it will read, He was manifest in the flesh. Who are they referring to as He? Changing God to He and taking away the deity of Jesus changes quite a bit and casts doubt upon Christ and who He actually is, a man or God. 3. Colossians 1.14 tells us, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Yet the blood of Christ here is omitted in most, if not all, new versions. 4. Acts 8.37 is completely removed from Scripture, taking away the requirements of baptism, as well as the eunuch's confession of faith. The NIV and most other versions don't even attempt to hide the fact that this verse is missing, as the numbering of the verses jumps from verses 36 to 38. 5. Acts 9, verse 6, over half of this verse has been removed, showing the fear and astonishment of Saul 
and him speaking directly to Jesus, as well as Saul admitting that Jesus is Lord. 6. John 1, 14, 18, 3, 16, and 17. The new versions change the only begotten Son of God to the only Son of God. Yet we as believers are called the children of God, or sons of God. Luke 3.38 and 5.18 also help refute that change. 7. John 7.53 through 8.11 is the story of the woman taken into adultery. This entire passage is missing out of the critical text, and since all of the new versions have changes based upon the critical text, they have removed this from God's word as well, usually adding a footnote saying, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have this passage. Though as we discussed on the preservation of these documents, these earliest manuscripts really aren't the earliest at all. 8. Mark 16, 9-20, Jesus giving us the Great Commission. The entire passage is missing here, because it is missing in the critical text. Yet if by some chance it isn't removed, they have a footnote casting doubt on these 11 verses, such as, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have these verses, 9-20. to 20. This not only removes the fact that we are to go soul winning, but also that he was seen of many after he had risen from the dead, verifying the deity of Christ, casting doubt on the resurrection, and giving an excuse as to not to do what Jesus has commanded us. 9. In Luke 2.33, the new versions attack the deity of Christ in these passages, substituting Joseph's name and replacing it with Father. Of course, Joseph isn't Jesus' father, but God the Father is. 10. And then there's my favorite passage in Isaiah 14.12, the only place in the Bible where we are given Satan's true name, Lucifer. This one takes a little bit more knowledge of scripture, but if we compare Revelation 22.16 in the King James Bible, it calls Jesus the bright and morning star. Yet when we look at Isaiah 14.12, in most of the new versions, his name, Lucifer, is changed to morning star, day star, or a variation thereof. Yet they leave Revelation 22.16 alone, making people question the deity of Jesus and who he says he is. You could even come to the conclusion that Jesus himself is the devil. One last example is the removal of God's name in the New Testament alone. In the NASB, Jesus is removed 73 times, Christ 43 times, Lord 35 times, and God 33 times. I could go on for hours with this topic, so I will restrain myself here. Yet, as you can see, there are many glaring and many subtle differences between the two lines of the Bible's lineage. Through much study, I have come to the conclusion, and this organization upholds, the authenticity of the King James Bible being the truly preserved Word of God in the English language. There is much evidence that the biblical text has been continuously changed over the years, on the Alexandrian side of the lineage through the Catholic Bibles, Westcott and Hort, and organizations, even just through the copyright status, in which publications that want to have a copyright must change at least 10% of its content every time you are wanting to renew your copyright or make another version of the first. When you look at the King James, it is not copyrighted, meaning any time you produce a King James Bible, all of the scripture does not need to be changed to print and distribute.
I would strongly suggest that you don't just take my word for it, though, but get yourself a King James Bible, open up the different versions side by side, and compare them. Do your own research, and most importantly, pray over this issue, seeking the Lord's guidance in this matter. I will also leave in the description a YouTube link to a fantastic documentary on the different Bible versions. Thank you for joining us here at Christian Lighthouse Ministries. Until next week, this has been your host and watchman, Tyler. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.